Listen, there's a great work to be done. As soon as you win this court battle, you must deliver this message. Take advantage of this opportunity and declare a powerful message to this world. He expects more of us. He believes we can do more. Who's gonna stop Christ? Who's gonna stop Christ from getting this work done? This is Behind the Work. Welcome to Behind the Work. I'm Grant Turgeon. We're broadcasting to you live today from the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And as always, you can get any KPCG radio show for free anytime online at kpcg.fm. Here on this show, we do try to cultivate a deep and abiding appreciation for the history of God's work. This show has really helped me to have a deep, deeper appreciation for history. And today we're going to talk about a little bit more of that history with the late theologian and educator Herbert W. Armstrong. We're going to talk about a crucial time in his life where God was calling him into full-time service in his work. But this was not an easy calling for Mr. Armstrong. Here in chapter 24 of his autobiography, which is titled Ordained to Christ's Ministry, Mr. Armstrong wrote, Every person has his idol. God cannot receive and convert a human life until his idol has been smashed or torn from him. My idol had been an egotistical sense of self-importance, a cocky self-assurance, a passion to become successful, to attain status in the eyes of the material world. Now you can read this autobiography for free at thetrumpet.com. You can also request your own copy. I believe it's almost a thousand pages. Really just so full of lessons relevant to us today. And we all have experienced something like this at some point or another in our lives. This tendency toward idolatry, having the wrong priorities, putting anything at all in front of God in our lives. Mr. Armstrong loved to be well thought of by others in the world. He loved the praise of men. And yet when Mr. Armstrong was coming into contact with the fifth era, the Sardis era of God's church, he received the exact opposite. Mr. Armstrong wrote, God gave me instead the false accusations, the unwarranted oppositions, the scheming persecutions of jealous, competitive-minded ministers. It required time to bring me to a place where I no longer set my heart on material possessions and the finer things of this material world. And like I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Mr. Armstrong did go through 28 years of poverty. This is how God crushed Mr. Armstrong's idol. 
so of course this is relevant to us in God's work today because we are striving to uphold that humanitarian legacy of Mr. Armstrong. We are striving to build on top of what God did through that man. And it's been about 30 years now that the Philadelphia Church of God has followed in those righteous footsteps. Thankfully, though, Mr. Armstrong went through a lot of these experiences so that hopefully we wouldn't have to. We can learn from what he wrote about and hopefully not have to learn the hard way like he did. In 1931, Mr. Armstrong started out with some of these evangelistic campaigns. One was in Harrisburg, Oregon. Soon after that, he was going over to Junction City. And during this time, he was also still working for the Wherever Aluminum Company. You remember, perhaps, an earlier show where we talked about him giving health lectures. So, yes, he was selling aluminum eating utensils, cooking utensils. But a huge part of that sales pitch was the health appeal, the health lecture. So during all of this, Mr. Armstrong was actually learning about natural remedies to human ailments. Something that goes totally contrary to what we so often turn to, the, the, the modern medical field. Even though the modern medical field and the mistakes that they make are actually, I believe, the third leading cause of death in the U.S. About a quarter of a million die every year just because of mistakes made in hospitals and other care centers. Now, I can basically guarantee you that trying a natural remedy, <laughs> trying to a, a change in diet or exercise, doing it the way that God would prefer that we do it, <laughs> will not lead to death. It is the natural way. Mr. Armstrong learned all about this. And you can just see so many events in Mr. Armstrong's life where he really was being prepared by God to teach the whole world God's way. Whether that was in the field of physical health or anywhere else. And likewise, God's work today talks all about a variety of subjects that will make your life better. It's not just about Bible prophecy, or any other subject. We talk a lot about finances. Plenty of other subjects that are practical and relevant to your everyday life. Mr. Armstrong, in 1931, also officiated a funeral for the first time. And he actually did deliver a brief sermon based on some basic verses about death and the resurrection. The real hope of this physical life, 
even when dealing with sickness and death, is the resurrection. We know that there is life beyond this physical existence. Mr. Armstrong was doing a funeral service for a two-month-old boy who had died. And in fact, his sermon moved the parents to repentance and conversion. So real fruits being produced by Mr. Armstrong simply trusting in God and teaching what the Bible actually teaches, what the Bible actually says. And these parents of that little boy, Mike and Pearl Helms, would have quite a lot of involvement in God's work for many years to come. That now really interesting part of this chapter 24 of Mr. Armstrong's autobiography is where R.L. Taylor comes in. So this man was a very good speaker, a pretty impressive minister. He made quite a huge impression on the members of the church in Oregon once he came there from California. And so the brethren in Oregon wanted Elder Taylor and Mr. Armstrong to go out on an evangelistic campaign together. The members all knew that there wasn't much life in God's work. They could see that the church membership wasn't growing. They could see that the message of the church was not reaching beyond their little congregations. It wasn't impacting the world. That's what these campaigns were supposed to be for. So because the members wanted to send Mr. Armstrong and Elder Taylor out on this campaign, they also decided that the Oregon Conference would ordain Mr. Armstrong into the ministry. Mr. Armstrong writes about this being ordained and entering the ministry full-time meant a complete change in my life. In former years, the idea of becoming a minister was the very last thing I should have wanted to do. But by June 1931, I had been preaching a great deal for three and a half years. By this time, my whole heart was in it. Hopefully that makes us appreciate what God's ministers do in the PCG and how they did have to yield to this type of a life-changing process. They, they did have to commit their entire lives to serving God's people. It isn't an eight-to-five job. They really do whatever they possibly can to help us connect with God, to help us live the right way a little bit better. Mr. Armstrong had his life changed by this calling. So June 1931, he doesn't remember the specific day, but June 1931, Mr. Armstrong was ordained into the ministry. So at this evangelistic campaign in Eugene, 
they actually preached for six days a week, excluding Saturday nights, for six weeks straight. On one night, Mr. Taylor would preach. The next night, Mr. Armstrong would preach. Back and forth, six weeks, six weeks straight, almost every single day. Talk about being a teacher for God, being able to teach that often. It is impressive to see that. Here, this is a really interesting section. Uh, Mr. Armstrong wrote, In Portland, I had gained some little experience with Pentecostal people. I had been somewhat overawed by their speaking in tongues and their glib testimony. I had not yet at that time fully understood it, but I had noticed that most of these people refused to obey God's commandments. Almost none had any real sound understanding of the Bible. They customarily had a wide knowledge of certain scattered texts, verses, or partial verses, which they usually misapplied, entirely out of context, putting only a meaning of pseudo-spirituality on them. They spoke in what was supposed to be spiritual-sounding language. They loved to show off, to brag, especially about their own spirituality, which usually consisted of sentimentality and emotion. So that really doesn't just describe one particular denomination of traditional Christianity, but really just about all of them in terms of believing that God's law is done away, in terms of being too swept up in emotion and not enough in the facts of what the Bible actually says. The Herbert W. Armstrong College Bible Correspondence Course Lesson 1 talks about why so few really understand the Bible. It quotes 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, which talk about how every word, every scripture of the Bible is inspired by God and can be used to correct us. This, this lesson says, but how many people do you know who are willing to be corrected when they are in error, to be reproved for the wrong things they do? It says, they love praise, they like flattery, but reproof and correction they surely hate. Now do you see why it is so difficult for people to understand the Bible and to agree on just what it says? The Bible is God's great spiritual mirror. It shows up every flaw in our thinking, reveals every spot on our characters. It pictures us as we really are, as God sees us, not as we like to think we are or as we like to have other people look upon us. It quotes Hebrews 4 verse 12, which says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So yes, studying the Bible can cut deep. It can be corrective sometimes. It can expose our inner thoughts. We don't usually like to admit we're wrong. 
Like this lesson says, we are all only little children grown up. Little children do not quickly admit when they're wrong. They do actually try to hide what they've done done wrong instead of admit it. And they will lie if necessary, if they think it's necessary. And that wrong behavior does have to be corrected before it becomes a lifelong habit. That's the way we are, though. Naturally, because of Satan's influence, we do just like to hide what we've done wrong. We like to ignore areas where we might be going against what the Bible says. That's just the natural way of things so so much of the time. Because it can be embarrassing to learn where we're wrong, to really focus on that and try to take action against that. And when we do try to take action against where we are off track, where we have sinned, we realize how difficult it can be to uproot these entrenched problems. That's so much effort a lot of the time. It's natural for us to just want to avoid that altogether. So this lesson, and by the way, you can get this Bible course for free. You can enroll in it for free at bcc.hwacollege.org. bcc.hwacollege.org. But lesson one explains that this is why human beings have started to interpret the Bible. Not just to translate it into their own language, but to read specific meaning into it. Not to just read what the Bible says, but to try to, as they say, read between the lines. It says here, instead of acknowledging the truth, men seek to justify their own ways by perverting the sacred and holy word of God. So the reason Mr. Armstrong brought this up in his autobiography, referring to Pentecostals specifically, but really, like I said, uh, it could refer to anybody, is that Elder Taylor was really buddy-buddy with some of the Pentecostal families coming to these evangelistic campaigns. He was nicer to those Pentecostals than he was to anybody else. He was showing... A bit of favoritism there. And it eventually got exposed that Elder Taylor had always been a Pentecostal. So he would speak strongly against this lawless type of religion, this overly emotional brand of Christianity. But then he actually was the very thing he preached against. But he pretended to be someone he was not so he could get inside God's church. There are plenty of scriptures that warn about things like that. Infiltration of God's church by wolves. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 4 talks about an end time rebellion led by a man within God's church who behaved like he thought he was God. This is something that is true throughout church history. Mr. Gerald Flurry, Philadelphia Church of God Pastor General, has written an entire book about church history, and it's available to you for free at thetrumpet.com. The true history of God's true church. 
but it shows throughout all seven church eras, there have always been false ministers who would creep into God's church, not just attack the church from the outside, but actually get inside and try to do damage from within. Acts 20, verses 29 and 30 show the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to some brethren, and he warned about this. He said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. This is just a fact of church history that really should sober us, and hopefully we learn a lesson from that. But the reason that happens is because Satan is attacking God's church more than he attacks anyone else in the whole world. And anyone who's not really locked in on what God commands can be sidetracked, can be derailed by Satan's influence and can be used as a weapon against God's own people. 1 John 4 uh, really gives us some, some valuable insight on how to avoid these kind of attacks from within. Now, thankfully today, that's extremely rare in God's church. But from time to time, something like that does happen. 1 John 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. You see, these false prophets are gone out into the world. That seems to imply that they were in the church in the first place and eventually left. Verse 2 says, Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So, Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote about this in his booklet, The Last Hour, which is also available for free at thetrumpet.com. He quoted Philippians 2, verse 5, which says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he said that, Discerning whether Christ is coming in the flesh means, is Jesus Christ in that man or not? Is Christ working in that minister or not? And he also wrote, false prophets don't just leave. They come back and attack. That makes it critical that we test the spirits. God puts the burden of responsibility squarely on your shoulders. Do you know God's Spirit? Which men are really stirred by the Holy Spirit? Which men are letting Christ live in them? You had better know. And later on he says we must look at the person's deeds. Mr. Armstrong learned so much about this through these evangelistic campaigns. He'd be with Elder Taylor and no one would be converted to the truth during those entire six weeks. Except on one stormy night when the fishers showed up and they were the only ones. These meetings were held in a tent, so no one else came during that storm. 
Mr. Armstrong took them back to his rented room, and he, he had a personal Bible study with that couple. And the one time that night when Mr. Taylor wasn't there, well, that's when Mr. Armstrong finally produced fruit. Mr. Armstrong talked about how if one man in a two-man team isn't being used by God, that will prevent both of them from producing fruit. Mr. Armstrong didn't just learn that with Mr. Taylor. He learned that pretty soon after this with Mr. Daly. Mr. Daly's problem, at least in one situation, was he was really concerned about his paycheck. And he actually left mid-campaign to try to save his job, to save his salary. Now, Mr. Armstrong stayed the course. He kept on working at these campaigns. He kept on trying to teach God's truth to anyone who would show up. And yes, Mr. Armstrong did lose his salary, but so did Mr. Daly. Mr. Daly left the campaign, and it didn't save his job. But when Mr. Daly left, all of a sudden, once again, all of the fruit was produced. When it was just Mr. Armstrong there. Just amazing the way that God teaches these lessons through real experience. And so that's relevant to us today. We can, we can judge by fruits. We can look at the work and see what's being produced and determine whether that spirit is of God. And it should be pretty obvious that it is. So today we've been talking quite a lot about Mr. Armstrong's early experience as a minister of God, what he's learned on these campaigns. Just really fascinating stuff, I thought. Um, Mr. Armstrong had a few other campaigns here. He was involved with Mr. Daly, like I said. But he did actually have five conversions and then three or four set to be baptized soon. Again, just while he was by himself. Mr. Armstrong actually did ask some members in that church if fruit had ever been produced from the outside, if members had ever really come into God's church from the outside, resulting from the ministry of any of the preachers affiliated with that church. These members couldn't think of anyone who would actually come in as a result of these ministers. So there's either fruits or there's not. With Mr. Armstrong alone, there certainly were fruits. This is what made it so difficult for Mr. Armstrong to determine where God's one true church was. This was the Sardis era. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 describe the Sardis era as dead, spiritually dead, no work. It may have had some other qualifications met for being God's church, but it certainly was not producing fruit until God brought Mr. Armstrong on the scene. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Grant Turgeon. This has been Behind the Work. You've been listening to Behind the Work. 
Email your thoughts to comments at kpcg.fm. Listen for a new episode each Monday at 1130 a.m. Central Time 